0: Classical music isn't dying, it's the profession that has been established that is. And so the structure is dying and other structures are just in the process of being born. National Orchestral Institute. National Orchestral Institute. National Orchestral Institute.
1: National Orchestral Institute. National Orchestral Institute. National Orchestral Institute.
0: National Orchestral Institute.
1: National Orchestral Institute. National Orchestral Institute.
0: National Orchestral Institute. National Orchestral Institute.
1: Welcome to the National Orchestral Institute and Festival's podcast series. Throughout this year's edition of NOI, we will be sitting down with visiting artists, administrators, composers, and participants in the festival for brief question and answer sessions to get their take on the state of music in 2016. I'm your host, Robert Lintot, and in addition to working at NOI, I'm also a musicologist here at the University of Maryland where the festival is held annually. Today I got the chance to talk to Jim Underkoffler about what it takes to succeed in music. Jim is the former dean of the Eastman School of Music, former president and CEO of the Philadelphia Orchestra, and recent past director of NOI itself. He is currently the acting dean of the School of Music at SUNY Purchase. As a young aspiring musician right now, what do your job prospects look like? <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. going to start you off with a big question. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, I think that um, clearly it's a highly competitive situation. If, you, if your aspiration is to play in a full-time symphony orchestra, okay, and I think that's an important distinction here. And when I give the talk on Friday, you'll hear the, uh, the not full-time symphony orchestra mix. Mm-hmm. I can talk about that. But if it's a full-time symphony orchestra, it's just the, the competitiveness, the level of competition is just unprecedented. Yeah, especially in winds and brass and percussion. But yeah, and so what I found here over the years—I've only been doing this. I think this is my sixth year in different capacities. Um, is that they have the students now have such a realistic view, as compared to when I first started here, and when I was at Eastman, right? Mm-hmm. So that there's a much more pragmatic sense, and. They're driven by, their love, by the love of the music so deeply, right? That they, they're going to figure out a way to make this happen.
1: And against all odds, even.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: because right. I guess one of the, the defining narratives, and I always question if it's true or not, and, and we'll get back to this question because you might be able to give an answer, but one of the defining narratives in classical music is that it's a field that's dying. So, it was already a field that was hard to get into, and if that narrative has any truth to it, that means it's only going to get harder to get into. Um, What does a musician have to do to distinguish themselves at this point? Obviously, a good audition is the the end-all, be-all, but what else can a musician do to distinguish themselves?
0: Yeah, tough question, because as you're talking, I'm rejecting the question in my head. Classical music isn't dying, it's Mm -hmm. the profession that has been established that is. And so the structure is dying, and and other structures are just in the process of being born.
1: Yeah. All right. So what sorts of other
0: structures do you see? And, you know, well, certainly the small, flexible ensemble is something that we see succeeding, um, not in any sort of roaring sort of way, but in a very satisfying way, so Mm -hmm. that you have uh, smaller ensembles like Eighth Blackbird and then larger ones like Alarm Will Sound, The Knights, situations like you know organizations like that and they they have a very vital purpose and and I think some of the smaller orchestras that that aren't burdened with high fixed costs um are doing are are doing well and serving a larger community through different kinds of activities yeah so it's it's the highly structured large orchestras and opera companies and and, uh, and
1: were you starting to feel that pressure in your tenure at Philadelphia?
0: Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> was,
1: was that the primary pressure you felt? In your...
0: Well, the primary pressure there was, you know, these enormous, um, the enormous fixed costs, mm-hmm. right? So it was constantly, um, how can you increase earned revenue and how can you increase contributed revenue? to keep it going.
1: Yeah, you were talking on Monday that the costs are always going to outpace the incoming donations.
0: Yeah, uh, and, and what you can actually charge for tickets.
1: Yeah, because yeah, you can't. You said on Monday that you know, if your costs go up 3% a year, you can't possibly raise your ticket prices 3% a year. That's right. Um, so what sorts of creative things do you as an administrator and do our musicians as musicians have to do to help make up that difference?
0: Well... And this may seem like I'm going out of the box and coming back in, but one of the most striking things about music in America is how much um, we are willing to spend on music education. Mm-hmm. If you think of the enormous higher education you know, um, structure that we have in this country, well, how many? Uh, I think it's 460 colleges and universities offering the bachelor of music. Wow! Right, and and look at you know, even though. K-12 music education has supposedly been cut and it has been severely cut in many places it still thrives in, in more mm-hmm. and if you compare the amount that's spent on music education to the amount that's spent on music performance and recordings it's enormous I mean mm-hmm. it's I don't have the exact number but I'm guessing it's a hundred to one Okay. so um, that's always been my, the conundrum for me being someone who's been in both worlds is how do you take that activity in music education and move it so that you know, yeah. so that we can move into the professional world of performance.
1: Yeah, that makes, that makes that, a lot of sense. And, and that's it's...
0: really the key, I like to keep challenging students with that thought because um, I mean obviously the way I'm on the board of Alarm Will Sound so I know a whole lot about it. Mm-hmm. But all of them are involved in teaching in very rewarding teaching and then they come together for these performances and it's a very it's a flexible model their income comes from multiple sources and you know we might say well they they don't have a full-time job but none of them some of them do but none of them craves that they they actually love the flexible model that they have so the future is going to be you know more along those lines
1: yeah and I guess that makes a lot of sense. and this is hardly the only field that struggles to translate an education and you know an emphasis in youth to an output in the professional realm yeah. um, so have you tapped into other fields to see how they handle this conundrum? <laughs> I
0: wish I had. yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. no again, it's it's all right. Yeah, yeah.
1: don't don't be but, sorry. I mean, there have any...
0: been all sorts of you know uh, attempts and studies and so on and so forth made mm. on this, you know. I think it's the pass-off from amateur to professional where we make the mistake.
1: Mm -hmm. And what sort of mistake do we make? Well,
0: an anecdote. My wife is violinist and violin teacher and she had an adult student when we lived in Rochester who played both, studied both classical and jazz. Mm -hmm. And he told the story of going to um, a jazz group at a club. And he went back during a break and said, would you mind if I sat in with you? and they said, sure man, you know, mm-hmm. and he sat in during the second set, right, and then he went, uh, a week later he went to, and I won't name the name, of the, it was one of these um, community orchestras that has some professionals and some amateurs, and he went up to the conductor and said, would you mind if I sat in tonight, and he said, oh no, no, we've, auditions are over, and if you want to get in, you'll have to contact me for a special audition. And he said I was just turned off. I was I felt like I wasn't welcome. That's
1: interesting. But at the same point, I can kind of empathize with the conductor of that
0: ensemble. I can if, too, but if, if I've already set that,
1: my, if I've set my ensemble, I sort of know what to expect. But you're saying
0: But the mission of that orchestra you have to look at what the mission of that community orchestra is. Mm-hmm. If it were the Rochester Philharmonic, that's an entirely different matter.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? All right, that it's makes a, sense.
0: It's a community orchestra that you know, mm-hmm. whose entire purpose is to serve the community. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so it's and so it, yeah it raises a lot of questions in us. But it's I think our problem is in the pass off between amateur and professional.
1: Yeah, all right. One of the things that I notice where people tend to do well um, is in one of the most notoriously difficult areas of art music, in new music. Right, WQXR has this Meet the Composer podcast that just won a Peabody that yeah. routinely raises 30000 a year on Kickstarter to get themselves out. And yet, conventional wisdom will tell you 21st century music is scary and audiences don't want that. And yet it's these groups that seem to be the most innovative in, in, in engaging with their audiences. And these groups that, again, like you said earlier, are really flexible about how they do this. Yeah. Do you think there's a tie-in there about sort of that clinging to the old war horses and being inflexible and working with the new stuff, or is there a way we can blend, go to the old material and still be flexible as if we're a new music group?
0: Yeah, yeah, well, um, I'll tell a story because when I was a student at Eastman, I I was one of a group that started the new music group, and we, we wanted to perform the music in the tradition of the Second Viennese School and and a few others, but mm-hmm. mostly it was of that ilk. And and I came back 30 years later to be the dean, and a group of students approached me and they said they were tired of, of doing only that music, that there was a whole new language that you know, mm-hmm. came out of Steve Reich and, and John Adams and others and Ligeti and Penderecki and whatnot, and they wanted to form a new a new music group that would be devoted to that music. and. So my first thought when I hear music of the 21st century, or new music, I think it's such a multi, it's, it's so diverse. Yeah. But we're still stuck with that, that stuff that happened after World War II that was kind of expressionism and... That turns a lot of people off. Really turns people off. So you say contemporary or new music and they think, you know, squeaks and squawks mm-hmm. and stuff that makes, makes them feel bad when in fact you know very well from your experience. Yeah, I mean there's (laughs) plenty of good stuff out there. There's really good stuff. And um, what these flexible groups have done is to find a way to make audiences interested in it and introduce it to them. Okay. Yeah.
1: What about non-musicians? You started your career as a performer. You've worked a lot as a performer, but you've moved into an administrative role. What other opportunities are there out there for those of us who aren't musicians who want to engage in the musical community?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, well, there are, of course the administration possibilities are enormous. Yeah. Right? Um, and again, the teaching opportunities are as well. Uh, you're going to be a, mus- a doctor of musicology. The best gig for you You know, would be a professor in a school of music. Yeah, I think, right?
1: Yeah, I mean that's the idea. But more and more, I start wondering, what if I worked with an orchestra?
0: Right, as a dramaturg. Yeah, I've often thought that orchestras should have something along those lines. Yeah, that's actually kind
1: of how we started this whole thing. Was Richard Sherbo and I were talking about this and said, what if we had a sort of musical dramaturg and Mm -hmm. couldn't come up with a good word for it? Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) musaturg just does not sound right. Um, but
0: yeah, I'd love if there were that, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, Is, do you see that sort of opportunity involving as a good way to help musicians engage with their audiences more?
0: Yeah, yes, Yeah, I do.
1: Okay, and do you and, know of any um, any routes that are available for this sort of
0: thing? I'm trying to think of the person that, that we had employed in Philadelphia for, well, while we could afford because we had it on, but we had essentially an interpreter. Mm-hmm. But um, like so many of these symphony orchestras that become rather rigidified, they wouldn't allow it on the main stage series, even though the audience loves to have somebody engaging on the, you know, speaking. Yeah. And
1: it, I mean, it reminds me of like a Michael Steinberg up in Boston position. Mm-hmm. You know, someone who yeah, routinely yeah. writes the program notes, and who writes them in a really engaging mm-hmm. manner and engages yeah. with the audience. and. To my mind, that makes Boston a much more open and welcoming mm-hmm. orchestra. And it, whether or not that's true, that's just the impression that comes across. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would be interesting to see if orchestras can do that, but you said it wasn't really mainstaged in Philadelphia.
0: Yeah, I think that the big orchestras still hang on to, the, to the, um, the mold that was set in 1890. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Turning to NOI a little bit, since you worked here as the director and since you come back every year. What would you say is the real benefit for a musician coming to NOI?
0: Well, um, I think it was four years ago we established that NOI should be a reflection, as accurate a reflection of the profession as we can possibly give these kids. Kids, they're not, I know. Yeah. (laughs) And so we added the Pops concert, we added the children's concert, the mock auditions and whatnot. Um, And, and of course, they have the opportunity to... to play under some top um, conductors. Um, there's no question that the benefit is that they, I mean, they're, they're very, each and every one of them has a, wants to get it win, what they call win, mm-hmm. an orchestra job, and that this will give them a leg up. There's no question about it. They're, they're being heard by the best faculty, they're playing repertoire, they're, you know, they, they're walking out of here with a bag of stuff that, they didn't have before they came in.
1: My thanks to Jim for taking the time out of his busy schedule here at the festival to sit down and talk with us. We'll have more interviews in the coming weeks as the festival continues, so be sure to keep checking in, and thanks for listening.